Well, welcome to the, uh, the September 8th seminar. We'll, we'll get started, and then uh, I'll do quick introductions and conflict of interest, and we'll get uh, started in the presentation. Today's speaker is Dr. Trevor Hawkins. He was uh, trained at, uh, um, in family practice and, and in medicine in the UK before coming to the United States, uh, where now he is an associate clinical professor he had been, his appointment had been in the family practice for a number of years, but now because of his extensive academic research, he had to see his appointment in infectious diseases. He's the uh, founder and CMO of uh, uh, AIDS Care, uh, an AIDS clinic and care organization in Santa Fe, um, Southwest Care. And uh, also an incredibly prolific researcher in HIV and uh, hepatitis C, um, here today to talk about his work with HIV and aging, um, a topic, as you know, very hot interest as we've been able to keep people alive and the intersection between aging and HIV becomes incredibly important. He is uh, an award-winning uh, clinician and teacher and researcher who's uh, uh, we're lucky to have today. Um, uh, Dr. Hawkins has uh, uh, completed a conflict of interest um, form, and that's been reviewed by our activity director. And because of his, his uh, extensive collaborations with industry, um, consultation with industry and speakers bureaus uh, industry, we looked through and developed a management plan that's uh, satisfactory, and I think you'll see that the, the presentation is uh, not uh, does not have any conflicts of interest. So, thank you very much for uh, coming in. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. All right, thanks, Captain. Can, can I just add in one one thing? Our evaluation form is, has changed, uh, so it's a little bit shorter, uh, which probably will make a lot of you happy. Again, reminders: we absolutely have to have your evaluation form for continuing education credits and for Support for our funding. Great. And Thanks. do we have the form so nurses know how to get their, their, that, that piece of paper, the credit form that they're supposed to give everybody? What we'll do. It would have been in the. Yeah. We'll get it for you. Thanks. Sorry. Okay. All right. So we're going to talk about aging uh, in HIV disease. Thanks uh, very much for the invitation, by the way, to speak here. I often get asked to talk about this subject. I have no idea why, why that should be. But anyway. Um, so we know that everyone is getting older and. Uh, 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 our patients are living longer because we're taking better care of them. Actually, the other thing that's happening is that people who are being diagnosed with HIV are older as well. So the number of people over 50 newly diagnosed with HIV has also doubled in the last few years. This is a slide showing the effect of antiretroviral therapy. This was the, how long you lived after diagnosis uh, uh, in the bad days, and it's gradually getting better. And so people are clearly living longer, but still, even though some of the modeling suggests similar life expectancies, most of the actual data suggests that people with HIV die sooner than people uh, without HIV. These are, this is the estimate of the number of people over 50 uh, by next year. Uh, uh, will be over half of all people with HIV. Um, certainly my own uh, practice is, uh, most of my patients are over 50. Um, and in San Francisco, Already, the number of people with HIV, more of them now are over 50 than any other age group. So, what, why do we age? What, what is aging? Well, it may seem an obvious question. Uh, aging is, uh, I, and I saw this on a slide, is a strong predictor of death. <laughs> Well, one, one uh, answer is that, well, I think I mentioned this first, that, that aging is not the sort of fixed, immutable process that we, that we thought it once was. There is a sense that it's more plastic and that we're beginning to look and try and figure out what are the mechanisms of aging. But I can say there's no real unified theory of aging. Just as we're trying to find a unified theory of, of the universe, um, why we're here and how we're here, then people are looking for a unified theory of what causes aging. And as, as of yet, uh, uh, we don't have that. Now, there's an evolutionary part of this, that obviously you have to age to make way for the next generation of reproducing uh, mammals. 
And so there's, so one argument is it's simply a, a program. It's a genetic program. It's, it's uh, random. Um, it's inevitable. And you just simply, your cells are programmed to die. And that's because clearly the old, uh, have, the old and feeble have to get, make way for the young and uh, vigorous. Telomere shortening. This is why, why we get older. Our telomeres, the ends of chromosomes, get shorter and shorter and shorter as we get older. Um, but that's only the limitation of that theory, that that's solely the reason, or the mechanism, if you like. Maybe the evolutionary part is the reason we get older. But the mechanism would be just telomere shortening. It doesn't entirely explain everything, because telomeres only get shorter in cells that act actively divide. Now, and recently in a paper in Nature, uh, Dupino et al. linked telomere shortening and mitochondrial damage. So we're beginning to see the beginnings of some kind of unified theory. The other theory is that it's, it's free radical damage. So the end products uh, of glycation uh, uh, cause the production of free radicals, reactive oxygen species, and that they damage the mitochondria. Mitochondria are those little organelles inside cells that have their own DNA. And so uh, it's defective mitochondria, leading to poor oxygenation, uh, uh, the rise of free radicals, tissue damage. That would explain why one of the the, uh, the ways in which you could, you can slow down aging is to reduce calories. So if you give give mice a forty percent less calories, they live longer. Uh, uh, there are really only two. Uh, elixirs of youth uh, that actually work. There's plenty that cost you a lot of money, but the, the only two that actually work are probably exercise and reduce calories. Not the kind of thing you want to hear at lunchtime, probably. <laughs> and finally, immunosenescence. So a wearing out of the immune system. And we'll talk a bit, little bit about that because it links to HIV disease. But that, that Peter Hunt from... Um, Steve Deeks's group in, in California said it very well. He said, one foot on the accelerator, one foot on the brake. You, you, uh, you activate your immune system, you rev up the immune system, you wear it out, uh, um, you get immune senescence. So when it comes to evolution, it doesn't always look very, very promising, uh, but we did get pedophile. Um, Cellular processes activated by HIV, and let's bring HIV into the into the uh, into the argument. HIV has, is and the, the effect of HIV on aging has become of interest to gerontologists because it provides a, a window into the mechanisms of aging. Uh, cell death uh, uh, by apoptosis, uh, T cell activation leading to immunosenescence, inflammation. Uh, the production of inflammatory cytokines and cell proliferation, particularly with a lack of uh, immune surveillance, potential for um, cell proliferation in tissues, including mutations that may lead to cancer. So we know that telomeres get shorter in actively dividing cells as we get older, and we seem to see a shorter telomere or a faster telomere shortening in people with HIV. We also see these, these effects, and we'll talk a little bit about those. CD28 markers are on the surface of T cells and represent activation of those T cells. So when you lose CD28s, those cells have become inactive. They've lost the will to, to fight uh, 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 on your behalf. I think of them as they often then gain other markers, other proteins on the surface of the cells, such as CD57, which... These are all markers which I, I always think of the cells with slippers on and a pipe in front of the fire not really doing anything. Shortened telomeres, increased mortality, poor immune response, faster disease progression, and the production of cytokines. And we'll particularly talk about interleukin-6, but also TNF-alpha and other inflammatory cytokines. Whether a small molecule telomerases will do anything, to, I, I, I think probably not. It's because aging is such a complex, holistic process along the lines that we've just talked about 
with multiple different factors all coming together to cause, to cause aging. It's unlikely that interfering with one, i.e. trying to block telomere shortening by using small, small molecule telomerases, is actually going to prevent aging. In fact, it might do something bad. So this is an adaptation from, again, from, uh, from Deeks et al. in uh, UC California. And um, whether you have, now obviously untreated HIV infection and, and viremia makes all this much worse. But even in treated patients, even in patients who are undetectable, this uh, algorithm still works. You get a loss of immune regulatory cells as a result of infection, which means you get decreasing immune surveillance. And decreasing immune surveillance might lead to uh, 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 sort of endemic viruses like CME actively replicating. Indeed, they, at uh, UC San Francisco, they've actually been, been trying to see what the effects of uh, using uh, gancyclovir and other drugs to treat CMV <coughs> would be on, on the <coughs> Thymic loss. Um, loss of gut uh, mucosal integrity and we're leading to trans uh, microbial translocation. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, because many people think that that is the number one reason why you have chronic immune activation and inflammation is indeed microbial translocation, not low-level uh, viremia. So chronic inflammation, increase in free radicals, uh, 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 leading to immune senescence and clinical disease. So that's a sort of an overall uh, schema of this whole process whereby HIV relates to, to aging. So we know about the gradual replacement of active thymus tissue with adipose tissue. So, so when you're my age, I probably don't have any significant thymic activity left. Well, that may not be true. When I left medical school, I actually thought that once you were out of your teens, your thymus was gone forever. Well, apparently not. You can see it, it keeps going, but uh, once you're sort of over the hump, over 50, uh, you probably don't have much left. And remember, uh, that leads to diminished cell maturation. So that's where T cells are, are differentiated and mature. Uh, we know that vi active viremia makes all this process worse. So in the SMART study, which was an amazingly good study, we still, it's an old study now, but we still refer to it. SMART study was that study, as you remember, where 5,500 patients were uh, randomized to either stop therapy and wait till their T cells hit 250, and we started or continue. And that, of course, study was stopped because of the increased number of deaths um, and, and uh, uh, non-fatal events in the patients who stopped therapy, and uh, including 70% increase in uh, cardiovascular, renal, hepatic disease, and 60% in, in um, fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular disease. And uh, so clearly that didn't work. And the reason was this, and I was there at the, when this data was presented. It was presented by a short, uh, chubby cardiologist who was so excited about this data, it was bouncing up and it literally bounced the way some people do. I wish I could do that, actually and uh, about how, what an amazing thing this was to see D-dimer, a marker of, of the uh, coagulopathy, to go up so, so significantly when, when treatment was discontinued. And the same for uh, interleukin-6, a marker of inflammation. By the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, but uh, if you have questions or comments uh, on the way through here, you disagree with anything I'm saying, or agree with it and want to enhance it, or have a question, Feel free to ask at any time. You don't have to wait to the end. I'm always happy to end. We could stop right here and just talk about this slide for the rest of the session. We'd be perfectly happy to do that. So remember, any time. Um, and it, it, indeed, it was IL-6 and D-dimer that were highly statistically significantly associated uh, with all-cause mortality. And we know that these markers are higher even in treated patients, uh, particularly older patients uh, that with HIV disease. In, and as well as uh, C-reactive protein and cystatin, but D-dimer and IL-6 particularly. So we see this evidence of chronic inflammation in our patients. Um, and we think that that's caused by um, this, uh, this effect. That you essentially, that HIV creates a kind of leaky gut syndrome. That, that it, it, it damages the mucosal integrity uh, of the lamina propria, and cause leakage of uh, bacterial endotoxin into the uh, lymph system. And, it's, and this happens very rapidly after infection. 
I mean, if you can get someone in a sort of pre-sera conversion phase when they haven't developed antibody yet and you can treat right away, it may be if you could, maybe one of the benefits to doing that would be to try and prevent this because there's probably loss of gut-associated lymph tissue, uh, almost total loss of gut actually, uh, probably occurs in the first uh, six weeks. Do you think that's linked to a, uh, a drop in the T cell counts in the, in the mucosa? I, I know that occurs within a couple of weeks of, uh, yeah. of, of infection. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. It's, it's a huge reservoir of uh, T cells in the, in the gut, and it's wiped out amazingly quickly. So you're right. Now, you can measure it, uh, and so you get this translocation. And you can measure LPS, or lipopolysaccharides, so the watergram negative bacteria, although it's kind of difficult to measure. It's not an easy thing to, to whip together. Um, neither is measuring uh, or, or sort of uh, doing PCR on, on DNA for this bacterial uh, RNA subunit. So it's actually easier to measure CD, soluble CD14. And it seems to be that soluble CD14 has become a marker for um, LPS and for uh, bacterial leakage. So people are trying to think, you know, is there anything we can do about this post uh, the event? And um, uh, so people have tried doing things like um, bovine uh, uh, colostrum, rifaximin, ways to try and sort of tighten the gut up and prevent this kind of leaky gut syndrome. No one's come up with anything too exciting. So um, why? Um, so we got this. Um, we've, we've got this uh, this complex effect of the HIV, and we know that one of the results of all this, probably we think largely a result of microbial translocation, but possibly low-level viral uh, activity. We we all have patients with blips, uh, so we know that the virus is still there. We know that there's a reservoir which slowly leaks. Uh, uh, a virus into the system, and so at very low levels. Um, and so low-level viremia may play a role, uh, although I tend to think that microbial translocation is more important. So you get this uh, T-cell activation, both of CD8 and CD4 cells. And, and the classic way to measure it, of course, is HLA, DR, and, and, and CD38 uh, markers. And if we look at those, we can see and this is the HIE, this is this is... Actually, let's look at CD8s. This is the HIV-negative uh, patient. This is an elite controller, but on, not on antiretroviral therapy. And you notice that the levels of uh, immune activation in the elite controller is actually higher than a patient who's undetectable on antiretroviral therapy. It's highest of all, of all in the chronically infected patient, not on antiretroviral therapy. And this issue here, and you can see it a little bit here too, CD4 cells, uh, it has led some people to believe that elite controllers should be treated. And that, uh, now whether it would make much difference, but it seems to make some, uh, you know, a little bit. I don't know whether that's clinically significant. Probably not. But uh, certainly there's some evidence beginning to percolate down that some elite controllers appear to be having earlier uh, clinical disease, diseases of aging, than uh, HIV negatives, and so the question is, should we, should we uh, treat these folks? And so this is looking at uh, correlates of uh, IL-6, as we know is, is a very um, useful marker of disease progression, and uh, a, uh, a is clearly correlated with all-cause mortality, uh, which is why inflammation is a, it's a buzzword now. Inflammation is a bad thing. And so this is from the ACTG trials, uh, and, uh, and looking at correlates of IL-6, and you can see that all the sort of uh, metabolic syndrome stuff um, uh, is associated with it, as of course is age, even when you control for all the other correlates of HIV disease. And then finally, all this stuff leads to chronic fibrosis. And there was a great uh, presentation from a guy from Minnesota who took lymph nodes from viremic patients in, in, uh, in Minnesota and then compared them to lymph nodes taken from people living in the Congo who were exposed to malaria, of course, uh, helminth infections, other chronic infections, and found similar levels of fibrosis inside the cells. And um, I know that Steve uh, uh, Deeks thinks that fibrosis in, in um, 
in the lymph nodes may be the single final pathway to uh, the effect of HIV on, on disease. So to summarize this part of the, of the, the uh, talk, uh, immune activation inflammation is a, is a major challenge because even it occurs, seems to occur even in our treated, treated patients. Clearly, treatment is the first step. I mean, it happens way more in untreated patients. Um, uh, they remain no, abnormally elevated and uh, um, are probably related to shorter life expectancy. So that's the sort of interesting part. Now, well, it's all interesting, but this is sort of more just the clinical part now. So this, that's all the sort of pathogenesis. Sorry. Yes, sir. Yeah, I asked you about that in summation. Uh, is there any evidence that would indicate uh, differences between men and women under, under, under these conditions? No. There's no difference? Or there... No difference. Okay. Not a lot of data looking at that difference. Yeah, but the immune system in women tends to be higher than their counterparts, uh, age match counterparts. CD4, yeah, but um, no evidence there's any difference in disease progression. There's actually not a lot of difference in gender differences uh, uh, in HIV, to be honest, except obviously for the obvious things. Um, you know, some differences in viral loads and CD4 counts, but overall disease progression appears to be much the same. So what about clinical considerations? Those are sort of pathogenesis of all this. What about clinical considerations? I think as we always have to look to the long term, both in money and HIV, and clearly uh, the blonde is going to cost you a lot more than the Ferrari in the long term. And, uh, and we, look, uh, we look at the long term in HIV. We're looking at what are people going to die of, and are they going to die uh, sooner with these diseases of aging. Um, sex in our older uh, Americans, uh, and this is not HIV, but... Um, Clearly, people are having sex as they get older. Uh, it's always interesting that men claim to have, in surveys, to be having more sex than women. I wonder why that is. Uh, some things get better with age. Adherence is better as you get older. People take their drugs better. And as a result, they tend to have, they're more likely to be undetectable than younger people. So the most difficult patients we all treat are adolescents, who are the worst at taking their drugs. The downside, the downside is, even though our older patients actually do take their drugs better, they don't have quite as good an immune response. Now, there's some data from Hopkins, actually, that does not show this. But the, most of the data suggests that immune uh, recovery is not as good in people who are older, which makes sense. <coughs> older patients are more likely to present late uh, and uh, think that if they've got symptoms, they're more likely to relate them to the diseases of aging. Um, physicians, you know, most docs aren't very good at talking about uh, taking a sexual history in the first place, let alone with your grandma and granddad. And so it, older patients tend to be, no one really asks them about <coughs> sexual activity. Uh, but sexual activity is increasing in the older population uh, as people live longer and healthier. The use of erectile dysfunction drugs is is massive in the older population and um, uh, has definitely increased male sexual activity. Uh, after menopause, the women who are divorced or widowed uh, don't worry about pregnancy, may associate not worrying about pregnancy with not needing to use a condom. And then vaginal dryness uh, 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 may facilitate the transmission of HIV. And so we see a situation, and this is older data really, from the very, very early HIV days, uh, very, very early heart days, I beg your pardon, um, looking at the 50% of people in this cohort who, who died are not of AIDS, and it's, it's a mix of malignancy and liver disease. Liver disease is clearly a big deal. 30% of our patients are co-infected with Hep C, and, uh, uh, and as, as Hep C is that, it tends to be disease, which the longer you have it, the more likely you are to be cirrhotic, the more likely you are to die of end-stage liver disease or, or HCC. And so um, that's becoming an important uh, factor. But cardiovascular disease now, and if you look at the Swiss cohort here, this is hard to see, and uh, I tried to change these to make them fit, and it didn't work. So ignore all this. Bottom line is it's, it's 
uh, malignancy, cardiovascular disease were number one and two, and liver disease was number three. In other words, the same things that the rest of us are going to die. And we see that uh, in, in actually, we now actually have data to suggest this is actually true. This is from uh, uh, Boston. This is from the Brigham and uh, MGH, and looking at uh, 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 MIs. This is uh, uh, Valerie trying to think it is, and um, clearly uh, you can see, particularly in the over 50 group, this, this sharp increase in the number of MIs. And you know this is controversial to some extent. This is one finding where looking at, uh, looking at CT angiography uh, found higher rates of atherosclerosis in HIV patients compared to non-HIV patients. Not a very large uh, group, of course, and so. And other studies haven't, other small studies haven't always shown this. Uh, but there is, if you look at um, uh, CT uh, uh, coronary artery calcium levels, which is a, a very good marker for cardiovascular disease, it appears uh, that there's more calcium in the arteries of our HIV patients than there are in HIV negative patients. This is Carl Grunfeld's data looking at carotid intermediate thickness, and he looked at the bifurcation, both at internal and external carotids, and showed that the differences in millimeters probably equivalent to about a 10-year difference. And we often see that kind of correlation with 10 years of difference. Um, and he adjusted for uh, a bunch of stuff. <clears throat> then this is looking at flow-mediated dilation. You know, if you clamp your brachial artery and let it go and measure the flow, uh, it's significantly impaired in viremic patients and actually is improved uh, uh, in patients who are then treated with any kind of effective antiretroviral therapy. So endothelial dysfunction is also a factor uh, uh, in our patients with HIV. And finally, this was uh, uh, arterial stiffness by pulse wave analysis, and again, was significantly related both to age and to low CD4 And these are all validated markers of cardiovascular disease progression. So that's cardiovascular disease in a, in a uh, hot second. Um, kidneys, uh, we know that there's lots of reasons why you get, uh, obviously, hypertension and diabetes is 85% of, of uh, chronic kidney disease in the United States. But age clearly um, plays a factor. So does hep C. Hep C is clearly related to kidney disease, uh, most probably uh, via sort of cryoglobulinemia, uh, i.e. the deposition of immune complexes on the glomerular membrane. And that clearly is, is how you've got this relationship with hep C and renal disease, which is significant. Um, and then HIV itself, and we know that uh, as you get older, your GFR uh, uh, goes down. And, um, uh, and we know that people with HIV have more uh, chronic kidney disease than than uh, people without, particularly if you're uh, older, particularly if you're over 60. Uh, female there was a difference. I don't know uh, whether that's why that is, to be honest. Um, then longer duration in AIDS diagnosis, and again, a low, uh, low nadir, or a low CD4 count. And this is from the Y study, and looked at uh, mortality relationship between different factors in uh, mortality in women, and clearly uh, proteinuria uh, was significantly correlates with uh, increased mortality, which again is not a huge surprise, because we know that people with chronic kidney disease are more prone to cardiovascular disease and so on. And again, may represent underlying cardiovascular risk factors, <coughs> such as diabetes and hypertension. So not a huge surprise there. But this is in HIV-positive women, of course. And this is interesting. I thought, I thought I'd pop this in. This was from the Melbourne conference last month, uh, uh, two months ago now. We're in September, aren't we? Looking at uh, tenofovir urinary output uh, as, as uh, people get older, and, and it clearly declines. And as it declines, this is the, the um, uh, it's a protein creatinine ratio. Um, and a, this is not just regular protein. It's binding ribos, something binding protein. I'm spacing it. Anybody can remind me? It's a ribosol binding protein, or anyway, I can't remember what it is. Anyway, so it's a it's a significant ratio 
that, that is associated with tubular, tubular impairment or tubulopathy. And so clearly, um, uh, and that's related to tenophyurine to plasma ratio. And so I just put this in to say that as we get older and kidney function becomes impaired, it's quite possible we should adjust our drug dosages, and we don't. And it may be true for other uh, uh, drugs as well, that we should make these kind of measurements. We should do more um, pharmacodynamics. We should, we should do drug levels and, and in our older patients and assess whether they need the same dosages as you're giving a 20-year-old. Anyway, that was an editorial. Um, bone disease. Uh, uh, we know that uh, lots of things affect uh, bone disease. Uh, they're all here, and I'm not going to go through them all. We know that uh, HIV infection itself and treatments, almost any treatment, uh, as soon as you start treating someone for HIV, you actually lose some bone density. And uh, some drugs more than others, uh, uh, but nevertheless, all that is involved. And you know, there's the ongoing uh, controversy about vitamin D. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a, I take vitamin D, I measure it in my patients, I replace low vitamin D, I have no idea whether that's the right thing to do. Uh, my colleague um, and friend Paul Sachs down the road, um, and I, I know he won't mind me saying this because he talks about it all the time, has a vitamin D level of 8 and refuses to take vitamin D because he says there's absolutely no data that makes any difference. Uh, he's a more serious scientist than I am. Uh, it I just seems like a good idea to me. And there's a little bit of data to suggest that vitamin D uh, reduces bone fractures, particularly in the elderly. Um, HIV patients have more osteoporosis and more osteopenia. So the National Osteoporosis Foundation have recommended that every HIV patient over the age of 50 get a, get a DEXA scan. Now, um, I'm not very good at doing this, to following that guideline. It's not that the, the US Preventive Health Task Force have not endorsed that with a, a B or higher rating, so, so I don't know whether you're going to get it paid for as a problem. Um, but nevertheless, because of this, that's what the uh, Osteoporosis uh, Foundation has recommended. And this is just more data suggested. All these different uh, areas, you have more uh, bone loss with, uh, with H in patients with HIV than without. Uh, and, and that has actually translated. Same, uh, same uh, Boston group looked at fractures uh, in this comparison and found uh, more fractures, particularly uh, in women. But, uh, uh, well, not particularly in women, because we see increasing fractures in postmenopausal women anyway, but more so in, in HIV-positive women, and, and particularly, actually, the difference is even more striking in, in men. So think bone. And think bone density, think DEXA scans, particularly in patients with... Uh, and I think this is true. It's, it's just HIV is just one of many risk factors. But if you've got a little skinny guy who smokes and took steroids, just taking steroids, and obviously he's got a bunch of risks for, for bone loss, then DEXA scans have become very important. And again, with cardiovascular disease, uh, if you've got your HIV patient, HIV is one of many cardiac risk factors. Uh, there may be, so if you've got someone who's obese or hypertensive or diabetic, or smokes has multiple risk factors, then HIV becomes more significant. Uh, neurocognitive loss. We used to see a lot of uh, dementia in the pre-art days, and that was a horrible thing um, uh, to see. Uh, and many of us... Uh, uh, so luckily and thankfully, that has really declined, so HIV-associated dementia is uh, way down. What we have now, uh, and this is a bit controversial, there's only, there's only one group that looks at neuro, neuro aids in, in the United States, and that's the charter cohort. And so the, they, there is no control cohort, if you know what I mean. It's just the charter cohort. So we have to believe whatever the charter says, there's, there's no other information. Um, and they talk about HAN, HIV-associated neurocognitive deficit, and talk about asymptomatic HAN. Well, that's really a research tool. Because asymptomatic HAN, by definition, you've got your seven domains on your neuropsych test, and if you're deficient in two of them, then you, the, you diagnose as having asymptomatic. But, but it doesn't affect your activities of daily living, then you diagnose as asymptomatic neurocognitive impairment. Well, we're not going to do that in the clinic because people aren't, if it doesn't affect their activities of daily living, we're unlikely to measure it. 
But there is a rise in the so-called um, middle section or moderate neurocognitive impairment, where, um, or mild, I guess is what they're saying, where, where it's two domains but it, uh, out of seven, but it does in, uh, impair your activities of daily living. And that's, this is something uh, I think we're all very mindful of. The problem is we don't really know what to do about it because there's not a lot of evidence that choosing regimens that have greater CNS penetration makes any difference to these things. There's a little bit here and there, but overall, no. We do know that it is, is associated uh, with a lower CD4 count. And remember, it's probably, it's, um, it's immune impairment. It's not direct infection of uh, neurons in the, in the brain. It's, it's the production of uh, cytokines that cause damage to the neurons in the brain that is the mechanism of this. And, um, and so uh, that is not surprising we see that. Cancers, we've seen a significant decrease in age-related cancers, so cap capacitor sarcoma. Were you scratching your head or asking, no, a, que I'm, I'm, asking uh, a question? Great. So when people look at the mild and, and more severe, um, is there any way to differentiate between someone who's got, a, a, like a 74-year-old woman who's got dementia kind that people without HIV get versus uh, HIV-associated dementia? Because we certainly are seeing people in their 70s who are, you know, leaving the pot on. And, and is there any difference? I, I, you know, that's a great question because that, that in the clinic, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. Um, there have been attempts to try and characterize hand by looking at uh, markers in a CNS. But again, you know, um, it's, it's, it's unclear as yet what those markers are. It's not really a standardized. So I, I don't want to say, look, if you look at, again, CD14s, or if you look at, I can't remember what the latest uh, monoclonal antibody that they're thinking that, you know, I, I, I can't remember all the, sorry, not the monoclonal, but the, 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 the proteins that that might be uh, tested for in the, in the CNS that have been shown to be related. It seems that every, every uh, meeting we go to, there's a different one. Um, so it's a little hard to sort of standardize this. Uh, so other than that, no, dementia is basically a lot of loss of cognitive function. And it takes, um, I think, a, a, someone with more expertise than I have in the clinic to be able to distinguish multi-infarct dementia from, uh, say, hand. Um, I would think this hand would be more suspicious in someone, A, with HIV, uh, with earlier, earlier dementia, uh, early dementia, particularly as it relates to specific uh, functions rather than a general kind of um, slowing down, but pretty difficult. I think I it's a... The old-fashioned old HIV dementia was just sort of this staring and, like, slowed response time right. that best... Well, that was a progressive, a rapidly progressive yeah. dementia, which went through stages of of, um, uh, of memory loss yes. and then short-term irritability, leading to anger, then leading to a mute, immovable phase, and eventually death. And the, so it was a really a, a, a kind of pretty rapidly progressive thing, uh, and was horrible to watch. In fact, uh, I used to enjoy my irascible patients because I knew they were at least sort of hanging on to some kind of cognitive function. When they lost that irascibility, then they usually became pretty mute and immovable and soon to die. Um, so the, uh, that was a terrible answer, because uh, the, the, uh, the answer is I don't know how to do that, really. Not in the clinic. People are trying, though. They're trying to figure out ways of differentiating these different things diagnostically. And, and of course... Are treating it differently? You know, like, so, I mean, not that Aricep works they really don't work very well and uh, uh, for any of the dementias. And, you know, I think you're talking about the underlying situation. So, obviously, aggressive treatment of HIV disease, but there's, I don't think there's a lot of... I mean, we've all tried this to, when people with CNS disease to try and consider adding some... But most of the drugs that have high penetration scores are the old drugs, like Viremune and, and Crixivan and all those old things. And, frankly, there's not a lot of evidence that makes any difference. But if, if, if the cause of, uh, of, of, of this is, is uh, chronic immune activation and inflammation, could we treat it with anti-inflammatories? Could we do intrathecal uh, 
steroids? Um, uh, I, I, I don't know the answer. It's all speculative. Um, AIDS dividing cancers, KS, uh, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, uh, central nervous system lymphoma, and uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the cervix are clearly on the way down as we treat HIV better. However, uh, non-AIDS defining cancers are on the way up, and there doesn't seem to be any particular relationship between uh, antiretroviral therapy and uh, cancers. It seems that uh, they're just on the rise as people live longer. Now, remember, this, these data do include squamous cell carcinoma of the anus, which is much more common in people with HIV and anyone who, who uh, has receptive anal intercourse or anyone who's infected with HPV. And squamous cell carcinoma of the anus really should probably be characterized partly as a, a, an AIDS-related uh, uh, cancer, just as squamous cell carcinoma of the cervix is, it clearly is related to HIV. Um, current recommendations from <coughs> HIVMAR uh, include uh, a, a yearly anal pap smear, and but you have to be able to follow abnormals with high-resolution anoscopy. And uh, that's not always easy to do, to find someone who will do high-resolution anoscopy. Um, uh, we do it in our clinic. And uh, if you know how to do colposcopy, you can do a high-resolution anoscopy. It's very similar. And uh, a little bit of training. And then uh, abnormals can usually be treated in the clinic with infrared coagulation or other methods. Um, there's some interesting data from the SPANC trial, S-P-A-N-C, uh, in, in Melbourne, suggesting that a lot of abnormal histology in the, or cytology rather, in the anus actually improves spontaneously without treatment. So I think that the jury is still out about that. But it's easy to do an anal pap. Remember to moisten your swallow. Otherwise, it gets stuck and the, the bits of fluff come off and miss it. And then uh, functional issues, frailty phenotype. Now, frailty phenotype is defined as any, uh, by gerontology folks as uh, more than three of any of the following. So being tired all the time, people walking slowly. You see old people walk, tend to walk very slowly. Um, uh, low activity level. Weakness, you can measure hand grip with uh, those sort of hand dynamometers and, and actually measure weakness of the grip. And then un unintentional weight loss, all associated with poor health outcomes. Uh, and in the MAC study, it looked like there was about a 10-year difference in the frailty phenotype between an HIV-positive person and an HIV-negative one. And the mechanisms are, again, this mitochondrial, proposed mechanism on mitochondrial dysfunction. And we do see that, um, again, in this study, that uh, HIV, uh, that didn't come out. So these are the HIV uh, in the pink, uh, is more common, the, the, the greater than three of those above are more common in people with HIV. And, and it clearly is related to earlier mortality rates. So, in summary, yeah. uh, obviously we treat everyone now with HIV disease. We offer antiretroviral therapy to anyone who's ready for it, but perhaps it's particularly urgent in people who are older because they, uh, they're more at risk of, of uh, diseases of aging, obviously, and they don't have as good immune response, so uh, the, the higher the CD4 count you can start with, the better you are. Um, obviously, primary care surveillance for such as things like colonoscopy, uh, prostate uh, exams, uh, mammograms and pap smears in women, all the, although breast cancer has not been associated with HIV. Nevertheless, all these kind of uh, adverse events uh, uh, obviously encourage our patients to quit smoking, actively treating uh, other cardiac risk factors are all more important in this group. Drug-drug interactions and polypharmacy is a big deal. Um, uh, if you can involve your pharmacy in uh, surveillance of these things, that's, uh, we find that incredibly helpful. Uh, um, I still uh, uh, do that. I prescribed etrovirine and darunavir the other day. Um, uh, no, sorry, etrovirine and dolutegravir without a protease inhibitor. And what I was thinking, I presented that data. I still did it. Luckily, my pharmacist picked it up. You can't do that. You can't do that. So it, it happens all the time. Um, 
obviously as your patients get older, they may need more systems. And here's where our healthcare system tends to fall down a lot, is coordinating care for the elderly between home care and social work care and, and so on, particularly for the frail elderly who are impoverished. And that, that really can be tricky. And uh, luckily for our HIV patients, we have currently Ryan White funding, and that means we can provide some of that uh, wraparound care. How long we're going to have that is unclear. Um, and then don't forget that uh, just because your patient is older doesn't mean they're not having uh, sex with uh, lots of different people. And so counsel them. don't forget to counsel them just because they look like your grandfather or, your, or, or, or they look like me. Don't forget to, to counsel them about um, transmission because it's important. All right, thank you very much. Happy to take any final questions? Yes, sir. Can you turn this upside down and say, as, as older people having like we're seeing more HIV, is their response to treatment the same as with younger people? Uh, in terms of uh, anti the effect of antiretrovirals, it, it's better. They're more because they're more likely to be adherent, so they're more likely to achieve an undetectable viral load. They're, the older you get, the, the, uh, your immune recovery is not as good. But in terms of antiretroviral response, absolutely, it's as good. Yeah. Here, our patients are confronting this over time, and sucks to get older for all of us. Um, but this sort of puts an extra fun spin on it. Yeah. Um, I've been struck that uh, a subset of my patients are really struggling with it, and I think some struggle because they never thought that they would age, and here they are aging, and they have to confront this long yeah, yeah. abandoned concept. Yeah. Others, I think, are, are, for reasons you pointed out, just having a harder time with aging than they might have had they not been infected with HIV. And um, so that sort of, you know, it's required a lot of conversations about aging. And I'm curious if along the way you've picked up, you know, sort of ways of talking about it that, that work for you. Well, what works for me most is I talk to them with my British accent, and that always seems to, to help. Great <laughs> yeah, it, for some reason, they, you know, it adds, a, it adds luster to the whole thing. Um, you're absolutely right. And I've had, I have patients come in and they've read the, the story in the New York Times about uh, um, aging. Now, that's a, that's a subset of a subset of my patients, but that occasionally happens. And people do know about it. Um, and it, it goes all the way back from in the days when, when everyone thought they were going to die, so they stopped paying taxes, didn't worry about saving for retirement, ran up all their credit cards, didn't give a damn about smoking, drugs, or the, the high cholesterol, and all of a sudden that all changed. And uh, uh, we had actually a, a, a program in Santa Fe called, I think it was called Phoenix Rising. It was all about how to help people get back on track with all that stuff. And then, and we had to. But now as, the, as the, this, the, the epidemic has matured and we're, we're looking at exactly this problem, I kind of emphasize mostly um, uh, that, yes, HIV is one risk factor for the disease of aging, along with a whole bunch of others. We've done what we can in terms of suppressing the virus. Let's focus on all these other things. And so it, it's, it, it behooves you now to spend perhaps more time, probably don't say behooves, let's spend more time focusing on these things. So let's, let's, let's talk about you smoking. You know, you come in here worrying about HIV disease, and you're smoking a pack a day. It's crazy. That's far worse than your HIV disease. And let's get things in perspective. You're not exercising? Go for a walk every day. It's huge. The difference between not being sedentary and a brisk half-hour walk every day is huge. So I focus on all the things people can do. And so that's where my emphasis is. Eat better. Don't, you know, do this and the other. I focus on all that. Try and put it in perspective. It's just one of many different factors. Is that entirely accurate? You know, perhaps not entirely, but I, I think it's a good way. To, it's, a, it's not an unreasonable way to approach it. I think it is hard to talk about, though, because I think it reminds me of, again, sort of 
earlier days when people first started having body changes and early on we didn't believe them sort mm -hmm. of and, mm -hmm. and uh, told them to do more sit-ups or whatever and and then so I think there are a lot of more men than women that, that I see here older guys that are 25 30 years into this who are saying I'm not the same as people over there and some of these are people most of these are people who didn't have total viral control early on because yeah. we, not, we, we couldn't offer it to them yeah and so they did have X number of years with so I think you, you you hit on a good point and perhaps I I, I, I skipped over I glossed over that too glibly in a way which is that first of all I, I couldn't agree more acknowledgement is important yeah. And, uh, and I appreciate the comment, and I didn't mean to be too glib about that. I, I totally agree. Not to acknowledge that this is real is, is leaves people stranded. And so that's the first thing. I guess we don't know if it's going to be real for the 30-year-olds now, 60 right. years from now. Right. Maybe it won't be real anymore. Hard to know, isn't it? Because some of this is, is actually not just uh, uh, early viremia, but it was low CD4 counts that seem to be related to a lot of these things, low nadirs. And so hopefully as we treat people earlier, clearly the CD4 count at the time of treatment is going up in the United States. And so hopefully we will see less of it going forward. But in the patients that we have now, we've been in, in and I have tons of patients in that group. Um, uh, I, I, I've been, I have patients I've had for over 25 years. And, uh, and some of them are in exactly that situation. And I talk honestly and frankly about it and then talk about what we can yeah. do about it. What, what, what we can do to minimize it. You know, this is a very specialized, fortunate population of individuals in the United States. Are there any comparable studies been carried out in Africa um, in terms of see, South Africa or other places to see if uh, similar, uh, where, where those people are fortunate enough to get antiretrovirals? Uh, yeah. Anything unique coming out of those studies? Yeah. Um, I, I think I think we were going to see those studies. I think we've been so uh, concerned with the immediate epidemic stuff, getting people access to drugs, treating tuberculosis, uh, trying to give people you know mosquito nets and, and uh, uh, with insecticides and all those basic stuff. I, I'm not sure anyone's really cons concerned themselves with longevity and uh, what people are going to die of. Um, uh, I, I'd like to say that there is some data suggesting that life expectancy is going up as more and more people are going on to antiretroviral therapy. Um, we had a, a talk from Tom Quinn from Hopkins at my uh, uh, clinic uh, a few weeks ago, and he brought a lot of the latest data from, um, from Africa there. And, and clearly, you know, uh, as a result of PEPFAR and, and the Global Fund, even though more people are getting infected than are going on antiretroviral therapy, nevertheless, it's having a big impact. And, and what the NIH is doing now is trying to treat whole communities. So we get the whole community viral load down. And you are definitely seeing improvements in life expectancy. So that, that's clear. But w whether people are looking at this sort of level of granularity, I, I doubt it at this point. Too many other distractions. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.